0: The reading is from 1 Samuel 11 and can be found on page 280 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabez said to him, Give us seven days so that we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. And just then, Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen and he asked, what's wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the man of Jabez had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. And he took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messenger throughout Israel, proclaiming, This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on his people, and they came out together as one. And when Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and those of Judah 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. And when the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated and they said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will surrender to you and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions And during the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The people then said to Samuel, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. But Saul said, no one. Will be put to death today for this day the Lord has rescued Israel then Samuel said to the people come let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship so all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord and there they sacrificed fellowship offering, offerings before the Lord and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, last week, this side
1: of the room, this side of the church, were a bunch of scoundrels. How do I know? I was one of them. I was there when Saul popped up from behind the luggage, and I said, how can this fellow save us? Despite being proclaimed king at the end of last week, Loads of people despised Saul. And what does the passage say? It says, he did nothing. Saul is technically the king at the end of last week's passage. But everyone ignores him. He's in post, but he's not in power. But this week, our chapter ends with Saul triumphant. People even offer to kill the scoundrels who oppose Saul's rule. Bad news for us. The passage ends with Saul and all the Israelites holding a great celebration. And so what's changed? Well, the answer is, we've all seen in the reading, victory. Victory is what's changed. But as we go again through the passage, we're going to see that there's two levels to this victory. On one level, this is Saul's victory. It's a real high point for him. A challenge has come, and Saul has met it. And in doing so, he's proved himself. He's proved himself to the Israelites that he's the answer to their demand for a king who will protect them. But on another level, this isn't really Saul's victory at all. It's God's victory, as we're going to see. God here in Saul is continuing to do what he's been doing all along, right through the judges, raising up someone to rescue his people. And our passage today divides into roughly three sections. We've got verses 1 to 5, verses 6 to 11, and then the last little bit, verses 12 to 15. And in verses 1 to 5, where we'll start, things aren't looking good. As Sarah said, the Ammonites, a neighboring kingdom, are attacking Israel. They're being led by a man called Nahash, which means serpent in Hebrew. Nahash's army are are attacking this Israelite town of Jabesh or Jabesh Gilead and here's a map on the screen which should just give us an idea of where things are. I don't know if you can see Israel is this blue and then the butt at the bottom Judah and Israel this is this in in our passages before they've split so it's all one kingdom and the kingdom of the Abanites is there in the middle on the right hand side and they're attacking that little green curve with where Gilead is up there and the thing about Nahash is I always thought Nahash when I first read it I read Nahash and I thought it sounds like an orc from Lord of the Rings and actually when we read the passage he acts a bit like one if anyone knows Lord of the Rings he won't let them surrender unless they accept having their right eyes gouged out why is he doing this why is he being so cruel well, one of the answers, one of the commentaries is that of course in those days, a binding contract was called cutting a covenant. And that was normally sealed by literally cutting an animal in half. Now, the commentator says, perhaps here what Nahash is saying is an animal won't do. You're offering to surrender and to become my subjects, but I don't believe that you won't rebel against me. And so the only way, the only guarantee I'm going to get from you is if you promise to give me your right eye instead of cutting an animal. And of course, this is really a cruel and vindictive thing to do. And he's completely open about why he's doing it, why he's being so unreasonable. He says he wants to humiliate Israel. So Nahash is clearly a problem in fact if we jumped ahead to chapter 12 verse 12 it tells us there that it's actually the threat of nahash that has caused the people of israel to ask for a king in the first place nahash is the presenting problem and now that nahash is attacking jabesh gilead the question is will this new king do what he's been supposed to be set up to do will he achieve what they've asked of him will saul stand up to nahash protect his people and save israel and it isn't a promising start is it at the beginning of our chapter saul is nowhere to be seen he he isn't doing anything to help he hasn't gone to fight nahash and actually what's interesting is that the people of jabesh clearly don't expect Saul to come and save them. Instead, in verse 1, they immediately offer to surrender. It's only because Nahash is being so cruel that they ask for seven days to send out messengers. And even then, have you noticed, they don't go to the king, Saul specifically, even though he's the king, even though it's his job. They don't go to him. They don't expect him to do anything. They go throughout Israel to try and find help from anywhere they can get it. Now, at this point, you may, might ask, why does Nahash agree to this? Seems he's got the upper hand. Why does he let them send messengers out to ask for help? And there's two possible answers, and they could both be true. But the first of these is that attacking a town isn't really very easy, especially if that town is walled. There's no guarantee that it won't take a long time and in those days when you've got a lot of people in one place starvation and disease will work on your army it's much easier for Nahash to say great seven days and then you'll surrender the second possible reason is that actually he might want an Israelite army to come that could even be why he's made these conditions so humiliating he's goading the Israelites to come and fight him. He wants to win a big battle, win glory for himself, and even more humiliation for Israel. Either way, verses four and five are a really pathetic sight because even when these messengers finally arrive in Saul's own town, they don't come and speak to him. They just talk to anyone they meet and the people they speak to, how do they respond? They don't go and tell Saul. They don't say, king, come and help. What do they do? The only thing the people have to offer the messengers is their tears. No one bothers to tell Saul. In fact, Saul, as Sarah said, is too busy farming. When we first met Saul, he was following after animals. Since then, he's been anointed. He's been proclaimed king. But what's he doing? He's still following after animals. Nothing has changed. And as Saul comes back to town and sees the weeping and the wailing, he says, Hey, what's going on? Even in his hometown, no one looks to Saul for help. It's a sorry sight for the new king. But... But with verse 6, everything changes. In verses 6 to 11, 11, humiliation turns to triumph. In fact, verse 6 is the central verse in this whole chapter. Dale Ralph Davis gives us this really helpful illustration of how we see this, how verse 6 is the hinge point. It should come up on the screen so you see. I don't know if you can see it. But we can see verses 1 to 5, things get progressively more kind of disastrous for Israel. But then verse 6, the Spirit comes on Saul. And from that moment, the narrative reverses. Things come good. Saul is transformed. No more hiding. He is transformed. From the moment that this happens, from the moment that the Spirit of God rushes or comes powerfully upon Saul, the narrative changes. Just as Saul changes, the narrative changes and Saul is transformed. He burns with a white hot fury. We all know those moments from films, don't we? Where where someone who's been ground down or his friends and family have been ground down and that person says, enough. Fight back starts now. Now Saul acts Decisively, he cuts up the pair of oxen and he sends the pieces right throughout the kingdom of Israel and with them goes a message, a conditional curse, basically, that says if you don't answer this call, this will happen to you. This is a very different soul to the one who was mocked last week and said Nothing and it works or rather once again God works through Saul it says the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they come out as one ready to fight the numbers in verse 8 are deliberately big numbers the idea is that the whole of Israel has answered this call in verse 9, they bring the good news to the messengers. Then we get a little bit of subterfuge because the people of Jabesh Gilead say to Nahash, Tomorrow, tomorrow we'll come out to you and you can do to us whatever you like. Now, our NIVs have translated this. Surrender. Tomorrow we will surrender to you. And that is what the people of Chabesh want Nahash to think they mean. But the reality is they're being deliberately ambiguous. They're lulling Nahash into a false sense of security. All the better for the next morning, of course. Because when Nahash expects them to come out and surrender to him... The Israelite army bursts into Nahash's camp in the last watch of the night, which is between two and six o'clock in the morning in a surprise attack. Now imagine being one of Nahash's soldiers. It seems like you've won. The people of Jabesh said, oh, tomorrow we'll come out. You've gone to sleep pretty happy, thinking one more night and then it's all over. I can go home. But then... Suddenly, you're woken up. (laughs) It's still dark. As you come to, you realize, what's going on? It's carnage. There's no time to get your armor on. There's no time to line up ready for a fight. It says they burst into the camp. They fought for hours right into the heat of the day. And eventually, Nahash's army is routed. The town is saved. And our chapter ends in verses 12 to 15 with Saul triumphant. Now he's the king. You can picture him there, can't you? He stood with his army, that head taller than everyone else. Armour on, bloody but victorious. And in that moment, everyone looks at him with a new respect. Suddenly, those of us who publicly mocked him last week, well, we're looking pretty stupid now. In fact, not just stupid, potentially treasonous. Now the crowd turns. Now it's not okay to say things about that. Say things like that about the king. Now the people say, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. Now that Saul has proved himself, all of that slagging him off from last week, that no one cared about last week. Now everyone says, hang on, you can't talk about the king like that. The king's great, look what he's done. Let's put them to death. But now Saul really shows himself a great king. Saul says, no, no one will be put to death today because this day the Lord has rescued Israel. You see, Saul here isn't just victorious in battle. He's magnanimous in victory and humble before God. For Saul, it doesn't get better than this. And our chapter ends with a suggestion from Samuel that they go up to Gilgal, this special place known to the Israelites from their first entry into the land where um, their shame was rolled away. Samuel says, let's go back there. Now again, our shame has been rolled away by our new king. Let's go there to renew the kingship again. And they do. And Saul is again proclaimed king. And they sacrifice fellowship offerings to God. And the people celebrate. And what an ending it is. If this was that film, cue the cheery music. Cue the words. And they all lived happily ever after what a wonderful story the end night night go to sleep if you're talking to a child (laughs) particularly boring film at the cinema Um, but of course it isn't the end there's another ending because actually Saul is going to return to Jabesh but this time he won't come as the conquering king if you've got a Bible to hand, turn to the very end of the book of 1 Samuel. The last few verses of chapter 31, verses 11 to 13. It's right at the end of this book. It says, When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men marched through the night to beth they took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the walls of Bethshan, and they went to Jabesh where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted for seven days. The celebration of verses 12 to 15 won't last, because underlying this celebration A question lingers. Who is really king of Israel? Is it Saul or is it God? Saul's defeat of Nahash is his high point. It seems to justify the promises and the request of the people for a king. They asked for a king to protect them from Nahash and Saul has just done it. And do you remember what I said the name Nahash meant in Hebrew? It means serpent. Saul has crushed the serpent and seems to have won Israel the security that they desired. He's brought security to God's people. But we know, of course, that it wasn't Saul really, was it? It's verse 6 again. It was the Spirit of God on Saul that brought the victory the people proclaim Saul king in God's presence and they sacrifice fellowship offerings to God but what happens if Saul falls out of fellowship with God what happens when Saul stops being obedient to God ultimately for us the good news is that there's another king who God's spirit will come upon This king will also crush the serpent and rescue God's people. This king will also face opposition. Scoundrels will mock him and say he saved others, but he can't save himself. His body too will be taken down and reverently treated by those he has saved. But with this king, there's no ambiguity. He's always obedient. And this king's death wasn't his end, wasn't his defeat. In fact, this king's death was actually his greatest victory. Jesus, when he died, would rise again. And in doing so, he would conquer the real serpent, Satan. He would conquer the power of death for everyone who trusts in him. Jesus was this king with God's own heart. You know, life feels very grim at the moment, doesn't it? The news always seems to be bad news. Life is a struggle, even a battle. There's war. There's the cost of living crisis. There's the constant stories of injustice, of police brutality, of divisions divisions in our society of culture and economic issues and divisions inside and outside the church. There's so much suffering and anger and uncertainty that we can often be left feeling powerless or angry or scared. And you know, normally soldiers in battle, these Israelites going into battle, well, they need to fear. They need to be scared because they don't know what will happen. Will they win? Will they die even if they do win? The future is so immediately uncertain. And with so much in the world, our future too seems so immediately uncertain. And yet, and yet for the Christian, in the greatest struggle of all, that isn't true. In that, there is no uncertainty King Jesus has already won the greatest battle for us. He has already broken the hold of death and opened a way to life in him for us. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.